You know the saying about no mountain being high enough? Well, in today's episode, Zoya and I spent time with Sarai Kumalo, a global speaker and peak leadership expert. During our chat, we learn more about what drives her to keep climbing and to make sure others climb with her. It was our pleasure to chat with Sarai as you'll find out that she stops at nothing to achieve her goals that inspire others. When you're done listening, be sure to get yourself a copy of her book, My Journey to the Top of the World and the Life Lessons I Learned Along the Way. You keep rocking. Welcome to another episode of She Rocks Global, a podcast that showcases perfectly imperfect women from all over the world. It's such a pleasure to be sitting in Cape Town once again to be in conversation with my co-host, Maka, who's in Uruguay. Hello, Maka. Hello, Navisa. How are you today? Very happy to be here on this edition, sitting from Maldonado, Uruguay, and I cannot wait, wait to start this episode. Exactly. Please share with all audience who is here with us today. Absolutely. I've got all kinds of metaphors that I want to throw around, around summits and peaks and mountains, but I won't get that cliche and boring. And rather, I'd like to introduce our next guest for the, for the podcast, Sarah Kumalo, sitting in Johannesburg, I hope, in South Africa, but with lots of stories to share with us. And thank you so much for your time, Sarah. Hello. Hi guys, how are you doing? And thank you so much for having me. Absolutely, I'm sitting in Johannesburg in the West Rand. It's a bit chilly, but uh, it can be colder, so I'm just having fun and rolling with it. I think you've experienced colder climbs, so and I'm, I'm sure we'll get there soon. So like with any of our episodes and with all of our incredible rocking guests, how about we ask you to tell us who are you today? Well, so my name is Sarah Kumano. I am the first black African woman to summit Mount Everest and ski to the South Pole. But my most important job is being a mother. You know, I'm the mother of two boys. Um, that gives me gray hairs more than any mountains <laughs> could ever do. Um, until recently, I was an executive. I was an executive in the financial services area for about 25 years. And now I'm a businesswoman. I've taken the learnings from corporate, the learnings from mountains, and I'm helping other people optimize their potential because I strongly believe that we are all uniquely extraordinary and being ordinary is a choice. So I'm an executive coach and coaching women who are entrepreneurs as well, um, helping them to optimize, you know, what they have and leaning into their strengths and not focusing on their weaknesses, which we normally do at best of times. Uh, but more importantly, I'm just somebody that wants to not die without having lived a purpose. So I'm obsessed about what I am meant to do with my life and reminding other people that they were born for this time at the right time and together we can change the world. That is incredible. And there's so many pieces that I want to jump into. So I'm going to start with maybe sort of work backwards from what you've told us. If you could yeah. sum up your purpose in one sentence, what is that purpose in a sentence? For me, is to change the narrative for the next generation of Africans through, through education. I love it. And it's giving me goosebumps. And then I have this, I mean, I know the audience is, is completely wanting, very curious about this. So you started off with saying that you are the first black African to climb Everest and to then ski to the South Pole. Why did you do that? 
Oh, wow. Um, long story. I did that because I, I love um, the outdoors. And I went and summited Kilimanjaro as a bucket list item. And during the time that I went to do Kilimanjaro, um, we were, as, as a team, I was working at Discovery, we were supporting a home called Kids Heaven that looks after street kids. At any point, they would have between 180 and 200 street kids at their home. And every month, we would go out there and take these kids for a hike to the museum, um, bring them to the office when they're matriculants and teach them interview etiquette. But all this needed money to transport them from their home to bring them into Santon or wherever it is that we needed to take them. And every month we'd go around the office and beg for donations to be able to do this. And you know, Novisa, every now and again, people see you at that time of the month and they know you're coming to beg. They pretend to be busy. <laughs> you know, there's donor fatigue, which is real. So when I got the opportunity to climb Kili, I said, I'm paying for myself, but why can't we showcase share the experience with other people that will never climb or will climb in the future and they can, you know, contribute to our cause. And we did exactly that. We raised enough money, converted a, a room um, that the children had, which was a garage, into a library and a study that they didn't have. We also built an outdoor gym for the home that's worth, it was worth at the time about 200,000 rands. Now, although the summit happened on Kili, something shifted when we were handing over this uh, library and uh, as well as the outdoor gym. One of the kids at the home came and said to me, I'm echoing, can you hear that? Okay, so something shifted. When we were handing over at the launch, one of the kids in the home came to me and said, do you really come from the township? which initially I thought was a joke, right? And I thought, do black people swim? <laughs> so I laughed and then she says, no, I'm serious because people like us don't do things like this. And I asked why, and she said to me, no, because exchange students that come from Europe to the home, when they leave, they're the ones that do things like this. And, and I came home as a mother of two at the time, my kids were very small, and I was going through this process, Novisa, where I was trying to figure out who am I, what's my reason for being. I had lost my sister and went back to my grandfather who always used to say, if your life is not a life of service, it's a life wasted. So for me, this was a life of service, trying to give back, not expecting anything from it. And I looked at my children and I wondered if I was doing enough to show them that help comes from within. Are they also thinking in their heads that people like us cannot step on top of the world? Are they also thinking there are things that they can do and cannot do? Because that, that was my reality growing up. I watched Wonder Woman, Superman on that small little black and white TV and thought, hmm, they're flying around. Nobody around me flies. So I'll, I'll admire them. They're epic, but it, it can't be me. Exactly what this child shared with me. And I made a conscious decision that I'll step on top of the seven highest peaks on seven continents around the world, but use it to raise money for education. Because education for me is the equalizer. It's the one way we can change the narrative for the next generation of Africans. Stats are telling us every day that Africa has the youngest population. What are you and I doing today to ensure that that population take the leadership role around the world to take it forward? I think education is the first step. You know, you and I are free today. Um, 
Marker, I don't know if you, you can relate to this, but I'm sure you've read about it. There were women that said enough is enough and they marched to the union building, which is why today we boast about 50% of women in parliament. I can say I can go to Everest, I can do this. What is the world tomorrow going to remember, to remember you and I for? I think it's for representation. It's ensuring that we take out all the barriers that says people like us can do like anything like this because we are all uniquely extraordinary. And for them to get their time in the sunshine, we need to break that to break the barriers. And it's not just Everest, it's what you're doing right now. You're running a successful podcast. A young girl would grow up in the township and say, well, I can do that if Nobisa can. I can do that if uh, Macarena can. And, and that's what it's about. It's so it's inspiring to listen to you because you are making history. You already made history. And I imagine for all the little girls, because we've been told as women in the world, and especially black women, the intersectionality there face, um, that we are not able to do some stuff, that some jobs are not for us. Still, you succeed. And I've read that you tried several times before getting to the Everest. Can you tell us about that process of resilience or, or of trying and trying again? Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, I went to Everest for the first time in 2014, a novice climber with serious uh, imposter syndrome. Because when I got there, people people asked to say, so what have you done? I'm like, oh, I've done Kilimanjaro and I've climbed in the French Alps. And they look at you as if this one, we must stay away from this one. Because beyond every space camp, you are rocked to the next person. Their life is in your hands as, and vice versa. So you want to be in the hands of somebody that's experienced. Not this one was just done here yet. You know, they started uh, climbing two years ago. And, and immediately I saw that and I wanted it so badly. I decided to change my game plan. I started running from Nukla, where you land, to Everest Base Camp to prove to them that I belonged, you know. And, and when we go to Everest Base Camp in 2014, three days later, on the 18th of April, a big Sirak fell and killed 16 shepherds at Everest Base Camp. And the mountain was closed. But something happened. When this happened in the morning, initially I just, I woke up and I thought, oh, that was an avalanche. It was, you know, quite loud. But... Everest Base Camp is strategically positioned. It won't get to us until I had shepherds running around, panicking, and they needed a paramedic. And the only paramedic that was there was an American girl. So they came and said, Melissa, uh, we need your help. People are injured. So everybody, that was in English, everybody came out of their tents. And I remember going to uh, the dining tent, asking these experienced people. That made me feel like I didn't belong because I wasn't experienced, never mind the fact that I was black and female. Because it's, there's a lot of testosterone, never mind, on the mountain. Um, and, and I said, so what do we do? What's going on? Um, and at the time, we didn't know anybody had died. And they said, no, don't worry. Let's just figure out people are injured. We're going to you know, help them. And I went outside and took my camera and I started taking videos and pictures of what was happening. And I noticed that helicopters was hovering around the Kumbu Ice for picking up lifeless bodies and bringing them onto Everest Base Camp. I went back with my video and pictures and I said, look at this, this these people, they're not injured, they're not alive. And I realized the people that I thought belonged on the mountain, that made me feel like I didn't belong, were just as scared as I was. One of them actually picked up his bag and ran away from every space camp. And, and that was the beginning of me realizing that 
I needed to figure out why I was on the mountain. Why was I spared? Because the shepherds that died were a lot more experienced than I was. There was a lot of also survivor's guilt. Did they die because I insisted on climbing? You know, um, why me? Why have I been saved? If anything, it's, you know, last in, first out, you know, <laughs> the least experience. Um, and somebody sent me a text, a WhatsApp message and said, figure out why you were spared. Figure out what you need to learn from the experience. That will help you move forward. You know, and, and I came back home to... Um, to people saying, oh, shame, oh, you tried, you know, you don't have to do this again. Um, you know, and I think this is a South African saying where we go shame about everything. I'm like, oh, okay, what's so shameful about attempting Everest? It's pretty epic. But nonetheless, I decided that um, I needed to figure out what I needed to learn from this. What I learned is people that were doing a lot more cardio, um, that were like runners, cyclists, were a lot more fit than I was. I also discovered that why I'm doing it was a lot more important. If I wasn't clear about why I was climbing, it was going to be easy for me to give up. You know, I also picked up all sorts of lessons that would help me be better. And, and now when I look at it, it's really failing forward. I care if both going to come, they are. It's only when we fail to learn from them so that we are better people that we actually have failed. You know, I came back home and uh, never mind all that was happening. In the process, I was also writing these proposals to say, sponsor me to go to the mountain, and you get all these no's. I mean, I got no's from just no, we don't have a budget, to no one like you has ever done this, what makes you think you can? Uh, who's the man taking you? Like, it was just crazy. You get onto the mountain, a, a generally Everest is known for for white male rich, you know, <laughs> they climb Everest. Uh, they think I don't belong. And I come home and my fellow people think I shouldn't be doing this. I don't belong. Um, and, and, and that was a, almost the genesis of me saying, I'm just not doing it for education, but I'm also doing it for the next girl like me that comes along. That will climb it faster and quicker than me. That will not be questioned why they're there. That will not be interrogated and made to feel inferior or not part of the mountain, that they needed a little bit more testosterone to belong. Um, so I went back in 2015, and unfortunately in 2015, there was an earthquake that killed over 9,000 people in Nepal. Um, which was unfortunate. About 22 people died at Everest Space Camp. At, at the time, I was between Camp 1 and Camp 2. And we were nine climbers, uh, you know, going to climb high and sleeping low. We had left everything at Camp 1, and the idea was we climb to Camp 2. When we get there by 2 o'clock, we climb down and sleep at Camp, camp 1. If we don't get there by 2 o'clock, then wherever it is that we are, we go back. And three climbers were fast. They went. Six of us were behind. And, and something else that I didn't mention, from Everest Base Camp to um, the top, you always climb with somebody. You always have to have your shapers. So partnership becomes important, which is something that I, I would like to just touch on a little bit, especially because of where we are at with COVID. So when you move from Lukla to Everest Base Camp, you dress like a hiker. You know, you, you make it. But from Everest Base Camp to the top, you change your gear. You need to have technical know-how. 
You wear a lot more warmer clothing, you know, downsuits. You need to know your rope work. You need to anchor yourself. You need to communicate with Everest Base Camp all the time when you're walkie-talkie so that they know where you are. If an avalanche happens, they know where to look. You can't wander around without anybody. You have to be in pairs. It becomes important who you are partnering with. And it also becomes important to change your strategy. What worked between Lukla and Everest Base Camp maybe have been the, you know, the strategy for success to Everest Base Camp, but it changes completely. You walk a lot slower. You, you watch for crevasses. You can't just, you walk in a line following the people in front of you. You can't wander around from the trail because you can fall into a crevasse. So anyway, so nine of us are going, three go up and the six of us are behind. And my Sherpa, his name is Nawang, said to me, uh, these guys are a bit slow. If you are going to wait for them, you're not going to make it at two o'clock. So if you want to make it, let's go. So I leave with Nawang, I leave everybody else. And the two of us are walking and suddenly the glacier that we were walking on or climbing on started shaking vigorously. You know, I mean, we, I mean, I'm not from a country that has earthquakes. So I was so confused. I didn't know what was happening. He didn't know what was happening. So he just stands around, hooks his carabina onto mine and says, Sarah, we are jumping. So the idea was if a crevasse had to open beneath us, we needed to jump onto the same side of the crevasse in order for us to survive. Because if we jumped on opposite sides, whoever goes under will pull the other one down. So my job, Nawang at the time had 22 years experience. My job was just to look at his feet and I was going to jump where he jumped. I mean, he, he had 20 years, 22 years experience. I was uh, a newbie. I was coming for the second time to Everest. So I was listening and he really showed me that it was going to be all right as long as I did what he, 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 had, he had instructed. Felt like five minutes, but now I believe it was just less than two minutes and it stopped. Soon as it stopped, he turned around and says, okay, we are all right, but we're still confused because we don't know what's going on. He takes the carabina out of um, my harness and we start looking around. Now, in the Western Combe where we were, we are surrounded by Everest, Nomte, another mountain, and Lotse, three mountains around us. That earthquake shook the mountains to the extent that it started avalanching towards us. And immediately, Nawang looks up. This is the year after the avalanche had killed 14 shepherds. In fact, one of his cousins was one of those 16 that had passed away. And he started praying. So it's a Tibetan prayer, which I'd learned. And he started going, oh, mani pemeum. I remember looking at him and thinking, dude, this God of yours that you're praying to is not going to save me. I'm a Christian, right? And, and, and the reason I'm, I'm actually talking about this story is because it's leadership. The world with COVID has just shaken us. How are we showing up as leaders in our homes, in our communities? Are we like jump on one side and with confidence and everybody's going to jump? If we fell, we fell quickly and we get up and we keep moving. Or are we like in the second instance where he was so scared and, and that, that prayer, I memorized it. I don't really know what it means. I don't know if that God knows me. And if he, he was saying, Buddha, let's go this way. I'm like, Jesus, let's go that way. We were not aligned at all. And I urge leaders in businesses and in homes to say, when the, if the world is shaking around us, we, what kind of leaders are we showing up as? Are we the leaders that the world need in order for us to get to the summit? Or are we the ones that 
you know, I just go in one way, the king doesn't understand what it is that's required um, and so forth. But anyway, so the mountain was closed once again uh, and I came home to more ash and we didn't make it, maybe you should stop. But in the process with the first climb, I raised enough money to uh, feed over 60,000 children for the lunchbox fund. The second one, I built uh, my first library um, at um, Kambisa, some, it's in Johannesburg. And, and I started looking at this, uh, the summit didn't happen, but I, I was changing the world. Why I was climbing, I was able to kick that. And, and that, you know, celebrating those small wins allowed me to go back and do more. And, and the learnings that I was picking up also helped me a lot. I became a runner, I became a cyclist because of what I saw other people doing in the mountain and how well and comfortable they were. And 2016, I couldn't afford it. Um, like I said, I had written 200 proposals and got no's. Um, so I decided that I'll just train and wait for 2019 and save up. And 2017, I beg your pardon, to be able to go back. Unfortunately, on the 8th of um, August, 2016, I was involved in a very bad mountain bike accident, which landed me in a coma for about three weeks, uh, just about two weeks. Um, it was so bad. I didn't even think about climbing. I didn't know where I was. I, I woke up over two weeks later, pulled out the tubes and was so confused. Um, and um, the doctors just said, don't get back on the bike because, you know, we may never be able to put Humpty Dumpty together again. Cracked my skull. I, I, it was just a very bad accident to, to the extent that they, they didn't think I'll be able to function um, as normally as I did before the, the accident. So end of August, I come out of hospital. September, I started walking. Um, didn't get back on the bike. Uh, October, I started running. I had a Soweto Marathon entry. And I went to, to, the, to the starting point. I'm like, oh, I'll just run half a marathon. I don't know if you run, but when you're in South Africa and you're at a marathon, or even if it's comrades, which I haven't done yet, people are singing this that vibe, you know. And I thought, why am I doing 21? I'm going to do 42. If I, you know, I end at 30, that's okay. And I jumped and I did the, the, the 42-kilometer uh, run and I finished it. And the next day I was at the hospital, I'm like, doctor, I ran 42, surely I can still climb. And I found myself the next year uh, on Everest. Um, and 2017, I went all the way up to the South Summit, which is 99 meters from the top. Winds were so bad. Again, same with Nawang. Um, and we decided uh, that we'll come back down because I had bought additional oxygen. And unfortunately, as we were coming down, something was wrong with my, the supply of my, uh, my uh, supplemental oxygen. And I was inhaling and exhaling the same air probably for about over five hours. And I kept saying to Nawang, why am I feeling weak? And it was so windy. The winds were bad. From the reports they gave us, they were over 50 kilometers an hour. And Nawang said to me, but there's the camp. Let's just keep going. And I lost consciousness. And this is in the death zone. And he couldn't help me, so he left me there. And he went to Camp 4, asked some other shapers. They carried me. This is now hearsay because I was unconscious. We got to Camp 4. Apparently, those winds had blown off our tent. So sleeping bag, everything I left in the tent was gone. He takes a makeshift tent, puts me there, changes my oxygen. The next day, 
I feel somebody touching me. And then I wake up, it's another shepherd, Lakpa. So I said, Lakpa. And he's like, oh, Sarah, you're alive. And I'm thinking, of course I'm alive. But I'm hungry. I haven't eaten. <laughs> he says to me, I have no food, but um, I have water. So he gave me his flask. I drank water. And he says, you get on the stretcher. And I said, no. And, and I remember just getting out of that tent and looking up at Everest. It's like in your face, so close and yet so far. And, and for the first time, I wondered if all those people that said I couldn't wear right, you know. At that point inside, I had given up because I didn't see myself going back for the fourth time. Came back, um, you know, and uh, in 2018, um, even though I had given up inside, I didn't verbalize it. I didn't tell anybody. I continued training. 2018, my son was, uh, my younger son was 15. And he found me watching TV and he says to me, Mom, when are you going back to Everest? Not, are you going back? When are you going back to Everest? I remember looking at him and thinking, if I say I'm not, you just think, you're always telling me never to give up. So I said in 2020, you know, and probably just get rid of him and, you know, probably won't remember. Um, but then something happened in 2019. The person who told me for the first time that no black African woman had summited Everest because until 2013, I didn't know that, he passed away. He just brought back those floods of memories, shepherds dying, realizing how my time, I, like life is fragile. You don't know when you're going to check out. I don't know when I'm going to check out. So why 2020? Why not 2019? I packed up my bags three weeks and I joined the team. I didn't even have enough money for the first time I cleared my credit card. <laughs> and I got onto Everest and, and I summited in 2019. I did a few things differently. I went with a smaller team. When they said the weather is good, I asked why. Um, I also did not try and climb as fast as other people that I did not train with. I followed my own strategy. I got to camp one, I celebrated that got to camp to celebrate that. And for the first time on the 16th of May, 2019, someone like me stepped on top of the world. It, it, it was humbling, you know. Um, I, I feel like when I talk about it, I have videos of it. I, I, I remember that moment and, and you cry and it's so cold and windy, your tears kind of freeze. So you're like, I'm afraid of crying a bit too much. But, but the, the voice that I heard is my mother saying, the sky's the limit, and how wrong she was, because suddenly I was about and the sky. This is so incredible, Sarah, because I think for me, the most fundamental thing that anyone listening will take away is someone like me got to where we were told we couldn't go, and that could be any version of our lives. So what I'm curious about as I listen to your incredible story, and I mean, this is but a snapshot of your journey as a human being, um, not just a climber, is who got you to where you are in terms of being able to dig deep and ask the questions, think about what you need to learn, come, you know, keep trying, you know, and even, you know, live a life of service. You've mentioned your dad, you've mentioned, you know, some of the Sherpas you've worked with, but when you think about who are the people around you who have got you to be where you are today? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So for me, it's, first of all, it's God. 
you know, um, I believe that very strongly. I was raised, uh, it was my grandfather, by the way, by, by missionaries who didn't have much, but they gave so much. So they taught me uh, social consciousness. I am because you are. A life of service is not worth living. My mother, who is still alive today, she was a single mother raising seven girls in the township, very patriarchal, you know, and, and every time, and, and the reason we are seven, she doesn't even hide this, um, is because they kept telling her, Helen, try, try and get a boy. She tried six times and got girls and she decided you are enough. She's not, she's not going to try again. And hence the, the sky is the limit. She can do anything. She sent us to the best schools on the other side of town. Um, and, and she would always push us. She said, if there's a meeting and the meeting is all men and she's, she'll go into that meeting, doesn't matter what other people would say. And, and she would always say, which she still says until now, nobody can stop you from achieving your dream but you. So if you don't achieve it, don't look elsewhere. Don't blame anybody. And it's okay if you don't make it the first time. Try and try again. And this is from a woman that was an immigrant in, in, the, in the Zambian environment. And, and she, my grandparents and God, are the people that I continue to look up to, even though my grandparents are now late until today. Um, summiting Everest as humbling and overwhelming as it is, has also given me the evidence that, you know, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but I certainly will get there if I know why I'm doing it and if I'm determined to keep stepping. So if you look at my social media, I always say keep stepping. You know, it's really me saying, keep going. You've got this. You're right. Learn from whatever it is. Keep stepping because nobody that's ever won anything give up. I love it, uh, Sarah. I will. I, I could keep talking to you the whole day because I have plenty of questions I would love to ask you. But I would like to ask you, which is your definition of success? For me, success is being better than I was a minute ago, than I was yesterday. You know, um, I think that is success because I know that there are people that will be better than me out there in whatever way, but they can never be a better version of me. That's on me. So success is me learning from every moment. My interaction with you is a teaching and a learning moment. You know, um, the experience that, that I've just had, you know, is making me better. It's clinging onto that and, and celebrating those wins as I move forward. The, the other thing that you didn't ask that I, I would like to maybe share, Nobisa, you probably relate to this. I don't know if you will as well. Growing up, whenever a girl especially succeeded in anything, it's like, no, don't show off, like you move on, you know? And, and I was like that. And until I came back from Everest successful this time, and it was like, okay, let's just move on. But when I was unsuccessful, people asked me, over, like I had to say, oh, and then, and then I didn't make it. I had to say it over and over again. And now I say, I'm not going to apologize for my success. I'm just like, I'm not going to apologize for my failures, but I'm going to cling on to them, scream about them, find what Novisa's successes are, celebrate them, shout about them, and the world is better. And we're definitely all about making the world a better place. And I think there's so much that you've spoken about today that has 
is one unapologetic and mm. at the same time fearless. And so I'm curious to know today, what frightens you? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> I think what frightens me is my inability to pursue the optimal self, you know, my inability to pursue my purpose scares me, you know, um, which is why I'm obsessed about figuring out what my purpose is and pursuing it uh, and going forward with it. Um, otherwise, I am, um, if, if I go back to your question, I don't know what context you're asking, um, what context you're asking the question from. If you look at someone that climbs Everest or does these um, exploration that people have not tried before and they say they are not afraid of anything, I stay away from people like that because you fear keeps you in check. It, it makes you deliberate. It makes you watch where you're going. It's, it helps you step with intention. I'm not afraid to die. That's the one thing, because I know I am going to die. I'm afraid of dying without having achieved my, perf my purpose. Absolutely. And I think the question was asked in the context of the wholeness of your life. And you've really given us a very whole um, answer to that. Thanks. Oh, Sarah, you're amazing. Thank you. Um, and to start wrapping up the conversation, um, I would like to know, Sarah, what makes you rock? Oh, <laughs> my children being successful makes me wrong. Um, that, that was one of the most scary things um, that I did in my life, having a whole little being <laughs> that I'm responsible for that um, fails and I feel like I failed too. And yet they've got their little mind and their own experience, you know. Um, I think seeing other women succeed and are unapologetic about their success makes me rock. One of the things that I always say is I've got to the top of the world. Surprise, surprise, there's enough space for everybody. You can fit a whole village there. So just drop that ladder and get, you know, more people up. Um, that just warms my heart to be able to see that. I am so excited to know that there is more than enough room for all of us at the top of the world. So thank you for reminding us of that, Sarah. Thank you so much for your time. I know that it's almost like we could think about doing a part two of this conversation, just thinking yes. about all your adventures and also all the things that you've learned from each mountain, each kilometer of road that you've cycled or run and of course what it feels like being a mother with your two boys there's so much but thank you so much for even just this short snapshot that you've given us into your story thank you for sharing with us and it's such a pleasure to have almost gone to the top of the world with you just through this conversation so thank you for your time and hope to see you soon Maka thank, thank you. you thank you Sarah you're extraordinary Keep inspiring people with your example. We need more ladies like you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Um, I've got my memoirs coming out next month, 22nd of uh, June. Um, so if you Where can Where we can get read. it? Tell us. Tell us. Where we can get it? So it's going to be on Amazon. You can get it from um, Take A Lot and all the major stores, exclusive books. 
Um, it's published by Penguin uh, in South Africa and uh, also another publisher in the US. So I'm excited about it to be able to share my story. There are things in there that I was like, oh, should I be sharing? Should I not? But it's just a testament of it doesn't matter where you come from, what you look like, where you start from. You know, you too can step on top of the world. We can't wait to share about your book, Sarah. So as soon as it comes out, we'll also make sure that we post it in conjunction with your episode when it goes live. And so thank you for sharing that with us. And thank you for daring to put it together into words on paper. So keep rocking. Thank you, guys. Keep rocking, Sarah. Thank you. She Rocks Global is a podcast collaboration produced by Macarena Botta, Nwabi Samayema and Zoya Kukic. This season of She Rocks Global was recorded in the American Corner Cape Town, which is also where you will find our sound engineer, T. Kray Gekana. Theme music for this podcast is composed and arranged through a collaboration between South African musician Nosihe and Hannah Sagasa from Germany. Mixing engineer is T. Luminous. She Rocks Global is a podcast that showcases the stories of perfectly imperfect women from around the world. Should you be or know someone whom you think we should be talking to, please contact us through our Facebook or Instagram or Twitter channels. Handle SheRocksGlobal. Hashtag SheRocks. Until next time, keep rocking. <laughs>